Ladies and gentlemen, this is Bill Adler. The show is called Too Old to Die Young. And as ever, we are rolling, 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 rolling. Welcome again to Too Old to Die Young. My guest on this very first episode is Mr. Jamal Joseph, author, professor, and filmmaker. Jamal, great to have you here. Oh, thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. The basic idea is this. Now that I'm not a kid anymore, I'm not regretful. I could have got out of here earlier. But, you know, the older I get, the more impressed I am by people who live long and stay creative. You're born in New York. You you become a member of the Black Panthers when you're a teenager. You end up in jail. You do significant time in jail. While in jail, you educate yourself. You rehabilitate yourself. You get out of jail. You fashion a career for yourself in academia. You end up as a professor at Columbia University. And most recently, you produced and directed a wonderful independent feature film. And all of that stirs my admiration, and we're going to cover all of that ground. But if anybody embodies this notion of too old to die young, you are among them. It's a theme that's addressed fairly directly in your movie, but I think it's also kind of generally true, and it might, it might speak to your own life. Namely, the odds against a young person of color, and maybe a young man of color in particular, growing to maturity and making a life for himself, you know, in America, in the 60s. I mean, you know, you must have any number of former friends and family who just didn't make it, who in fact died young. Is that true? Yeah, it's a startling reality growing up black and brown and male in America. The mortality rate, the idea that uh, you may not make it to 21, certainly may not make it to 30. And that's based upon what you saw happen to your friends, your uncles, your fathers. And that is, you know, because of the criminal justice system. There is a one in four, one in five chance that a black boy growing up will go to college, but a one in three guarantee that they'll wind up in prison. And then it's also from what can happen right in the community in terms of gang violence, stray bullets, all that happening. In the building where I raised my sons, I have three children. I have a son who's now 34 years old, a son who is about to turn 28, and a daughter who's 25. In this building in Harlem, of the boys, of the black and Latino boys who were born around the same time, in this building, three are dead, three went to prison, four did go to college, two of those being my sons. That's just the statistics, the microcosm in a building. And if you expand that to the notion that in New York City, 60% of the prison population comes from about five zip codes. And it's no big surprise where those zip codes are. As much progress as there has been for people of color in America in the last half century or so, you know, since the Civil Rights Act, some things have not changed. So cast your mind back. And let's talk about what your life was like as a kid 
what were the social conditions, what were the particular conditions of your life, and then also what led you to the Black Panther Party? Well, just kind of building on this notion of the idea of growing old and being permitted to grow old. When I was young, I was born in 1953. You're now, what, 63? I'm now 63. All right, go ahead. You know, the war in Vietnam was going on, so I grew up around the same idea that, you know, because of the streets, because of the police, that we'd be lucky to make it to age 21. You're saying that was a matter of discussion when you were a teenager. Oh, yeah, that was a matter of discussion. So you, what you do as a teenager, you know, there's, there's a ritual when you're drinking wine, you get a bottle of wine, and you would always pour a little wine out. You know, later I learned it was libation and something that, you know, that they did in Africa and you do in rituals where you pour out libation to the dead. You'd always pour out a little wine before you took a sip to the guys who were upstate and to the ones that are not here anymore because even then you knew it. So there's two notions that came when you were young, right? One is that all of these problems were not just your fault. So the other thing that comes with that as a young black man growing up in America is this phrase, niggas ain't shit. And you start to hear that from the time that you're a kid. That's from within the community. That's not people outside the community saying that. This, I'm talking about niggas ain't shit from within the community. So I'm talking about what you're hearing in your own households, and it's what Fanon talked about, about the internalization of your oppression, right? My grandfather played a song for me that was a big hit in the 20s and the 30s. If you're black, get back. If you're brown, stick around. If you're white, you're just right. And then the idea of black is beautiful. The idea of the black cultural revolution came about, and we started embracing that notion that black is beautiful, grew that kinky hair out. Before you, you know, begin listening to the siren song of the Panthers and the kind of the black radical politics of the day, what prepared you for that? What made you ready for that? Well, my first teacher in terms of black culture and black history was my adopted grandfather. I was conceived in Cuba. I'm Afro-Cuban. And my mom came here because she was pregnant with me and my father was a member of the Communist Party. He was hanging out with Fidel and Raul Castro. Those two things were enough for my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, to put mom on the first thing smoking in New York City. And so she gets here in 52. And so she put me in the care of an amazing couple, Nooney and Pa Baltimore. They were in their 60s and 70s when they got me. Their parents had been slaves. Mm. They grew up in a segregated South where they saw lynching. They grew up in the South where when you were walking down the street, you didn't look white people directly in the eye. And in fact, you would get off the sidewalk to get out their way, right? And it didn't matter if this was a 75-year-old grandmother and it was raining and a young white kid walked by, grandma was going to step in that mud in the rain and get her shoes muddy so this white kid could pass by. My grandfather, he had been a boxer, he had been a numbers runner, he had been a merchant marine, he had seen the world. So you knew the world was bigger than the segregated South. And he was what we call a race man. He was very proud to be black. I'd sit with Grandpa, and we'd be watching TV. And, you know, watching media in a, in, in a black family is like an interactive experience. If you've ever seen movies at the Magic Johnson, you know what I'm talking about. People talk back to the screen. It's a live dialogue. And so Tarzan would be on. Johnny Weissmell, a black and white movie. I'd be doing my homework on the couch. He'd be watching. Tarzan would swing across the street, he'd do the Tarzan yell, and the evil white hunters would have the damsel in distress at gunpoint. The Africans would be standing on the side looking crazy and scared. Tarzan would speak his Tarzanese, 
Lions would come, monkeys would come and save the day. Grandpa would watch this, and after about five minutes, he would he would do his political commentary, his political cultural commentary, which was, what the fuck is that? <laughs> no, what the fuck is that? Tell me how a crack-ass baby fall out the goddamn plane. He speak blind monkey every damn thing. The Africans look like they're crazy. Boy, change the damn channel. You're eight, you're 10. Yeah, mate, I'm 10. He was letting me know something wasn't right. I remember this. It was a young Harry Reasoner, and he was doing an editorial, and it was about the race for space. So this is the right? network news. This is the network news. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about the race for space, right, because the Russians had put a satellite, Sputnik, in yeah, there, yeah. and we were behind. And um, Grandpa let this go on for about four minutes, right? And Mr. Reasoner is giving his commentary, and then he says... Use a lion, onion head, frying pan face, cracker. Change the damn channel. Damn. So even there, I learned he had that fire, that mistrust of media, but he also would sit and talk to me. There was no black history books in school, not in colleges and universities, certainly not in public school, right. but the names of people like Frederick Douglass, right, right. Benjamin Banneker, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, he taught me. So the, 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 the power of that kind of set me. And my friend Karen Meadows was an amazing actress. And she reminded me. I remember you came to school in third grade and you were talking about de facto segregation in the third grade. I went to Trinity Baptist Church in the Bronx. And they would have guest speakers, freedom writers, right? Young people, black and white, mm -hmm. Jewish and Christian. That's right. Would come to the church and talk about what they were doing going across the country in buses to desegregate bus stations and to build on the example of the Montgomery bus boycott. So it gave me a sense that there was something called a movement, that there was a civil rights movement. How unique were you, someone of your age, in that place at that time? Did you find fellow travelers amongst your, your schoolmates, or did you feel kind of unique growing up when you're that young? I did feel unique. There were fellow travelers, though, because we would have conversations about race, even as kids. We knew there was a difference. There was this mixed conversation going on within me about race, right? When to talk about it, when not to talk about it, who to talk about it around. Who was it who talked about double consciousness? Du Bois talked about double yeah, consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Spell it out for folks. What did he mean by double consciousness? So double consciousness means that you grow up aware that you're black, and what it is, how you're supposed to behave in certain circles. How am I supposed to behave as a Negro boy around white people at school, as opposed to how I behave on the block around other black folks? Oh, yeah. And then even with the other black folks, are you supposed to be a bourgeois black person or are you supposed to be a get down black person? Damn. Right? So on the one hand, I have this awareness and I know that there's great heroes to look up to. And I know there's an expectation of me to grow up and go to college, and people thought that I would be a lawyer or a doctor. But I'm also growing up two blocks from the Eden Wall Projects, and I want to be down. Tell me what's sexy. What's going on at the Eden Wall Projects? So Eden Wall Projects is the public housing project, one of the biggest housing projects in New York City. And it was like Harlem in the Bronx. So it was a tough project. In fact, Eden Wall Projects was so tough that they relocated the precinct to be directly across the project, the 47th precinct. And so I loved hanging out in the projects. I loved hanging out with the Tough Brothers. I guess I don't. Oh, you mad, huh? Oh, you mad, huh? 
there, still be on the block like a cornerstone. Ain't my fault, you ain't the man. Made a plan, man, they was playing. They sleeping on me like long flights. I pop a Zan on the way to France. Paparazzi like, oh, that's him. Hold that jam. Let's get faded. Drinking like it's no tomorrow. What's today? I'm in the matrix. Hey, the please. So the appeal of it is manhood. Your examples of manhood. Listen to people do up on the corner, playing basketball, drinking wine, smoking a little bit of weed, talking to shit, talking to girls, fighting for your turf, whether it's, are you from the projects or not from the projects? Are you from Bronxwood Avenue or not from Bronxwood Avenue? And these rituals, these manhood rituals are being repeated all over the city, all over the black community as a rite of passage as to what being a man is really about. What was your grandfather saying about that, about the fact that you hung out at Edenwald? Was he pro or con? Well, he was pro me being a man. Grandmother, of course, and grandpa didn't want me hanging out in the projects. So I had to sneak, hang out. But he was smart enough to know because he ran some numbers in the neighborhood. And he would give me a lot of lessons about how to take care of myself, certain people to look out for, who to hang with. But he also told me stuff, if I came home with a fight, if somebody had, you know, took my lunch money, he would be like, you need to go back out there and fight, whether you win or lose. You can't be a punk. You can't I, be knew, a punk. I knew that was coming. It felt like two different lives. And a lot of us that were going to school and doing okay in school that were hanging out knew that there was that part that we had to do for our teachers and our parents, but there was other parts so that we could walk from school and church and these other places with some kind of respect that you had to do it no matter who you were. You know, if we played the dozens and if we were cussing, that's not stuff that we would do in school and church and home. So all this is jumbled up. Then Dr. King gets killed. And then you see on television, H. Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, and the Black Panther Party storming the state capital of Sacramento with guns. And this blows your mind. And they're talking the same kind of smack that you're talking, but not against someone who lives in a different project or a different block but against white America. How was it that the Panthers out of Oakland were able to march on Sacramento with guns displayed? How did they even get away with it? What was the law like at that time? In California, they could open carry. They could have not small arms, but they could carry guns, shotguns, rifles, uh, rifles if they didn't have a criminal record. So they didn't even need a, a permit. That's right. So a, a big problem in the black community was and still is police brutality. In those days, the cops would stop you and smack you around, question you, smack you around, and they may or may not arrest you, but an ass-whipping was an understood part of the process. Even me as this good working-class kid growing up in the Bronx in a poor but working-class community got smacked around by the cops a number of times. That was just part of it. As a youth. Come, as a youth. If you're on that corner, if I'm hanging out with some of the other guys, even if the cops thought that you weren't that kid, right, that they were looking for, that had been gang fighting or that had a switchblade or something else, you get smacked in the head and sent on your way. The cops carried nightsticks at a time. They'd smack you across your legs, say, you get the fuck out of here, take your black ass home. So this was part of it, running from cops, but knowing if they caught you just from running from cops that you would get beat up was part of it. I remember one time, I think we were about 10 years old. We climbed over the fence to play basketball in a School playground area. that had been closed for the night. Yeah, yeah. Cops came, asked us our names, and uh, we told us our names, told us to get the hell out of there, confiscated the basketball, 
One of my friends asked for the basketball back. The cop said, I told you to get the fuck out of here. Whipped us across the These are all white cops. There were no black cops there. Right. These were all white cops. And we would give the cops names. We knew who they were. And they had names like Frankenstein, Batman and Robin. They were like legend, right? That if certain cops caught you, you were going to get your ass beat. The crucial thing was that you had no recourse. There was no way to defend yourself. And more importantly, it was accepted. On this night that I'm talking about, we run down the street and we get into an alleyway to catch our breath. And my friend Roger was crying. And we said, you crying? He was like, no, I'm not crying. We're like, oh, you crying because the police hit you? You a punk. I'm not a punk. Here we are, black kids who had just been assaulted. Mm. A felony had been committed. Mm. We had been assaulted by not only adults, members of law enforcement who had taken an oath and was being paid with taxpayer money to protect us had just assaulted us. And our response to us was teasing our friend because he was crying about that. That's how indoctrinated we were that this is the way policing worked in the black community. So that when the Panthers wanted to address that, they started to patrol the streets of California with shotguns and law books. They would stand a legal distance away when the cops would stop anybody, and they would read them their rights. I want to focus in on that. So the cops in Oakland, California, in the performance of their duty, they're in the black community, they stop somebody. They're in the process of doing whatever it is that they're doing. They're talking to some of the folks in the community. They're arresting folks in the community. And up until the Panthers arrived, they'd been able to do what they wanted without any interference. Now, all of a sudden, with the Panthers, these young black men show up carrying guns and law books and observe the police doing their duty, so-called. It's just stunning. It was stunning. It's absolutely stunning. The cops flipped. The cops flipped out. So they're reading them the penal code. They're reading them the law that they have a right to observe. They're reading the person their rights. They're following the cops. A lot of times the cops will let the person go. They certainly weren't beating people up as standard operational procedure anymore with armed black men looking at them. Love that. They would follow the person to the precinct to make sure that they weren't brutalized there. They'd follow cops in a cop car? They'd follow the cars? They'd follow the cars. When the Panthers marched in Sacramento, that was filmed. That was a media hurricane. This was a hurricane. Well, of course, the legislature's response to this was when we said citizens could carry guns, we didn't mean these black men and women with berets and leather coats in Oakland. We have to change the gun laws. The Panthers responded by sending an entourage, sending a group of Panthers to those hearings. Wait, Jamal, just tell me, when was it? Was it 68, 69? This was in 67. 67 when the Panthers marched on Sacramento. The Panthers marched on Sacramento with guns. And to go to the floor of the legislature to protest and to say how this change was racist, because what you've been saying historically, that white people can bear arms to defend themselves, but black people can't. And this made national news. Ronald Reagan, who was the governor, also happened to be there. And he was talking to a group of high school students who were visiting the state capitol. So there happened to be a lot of reporters outside kind of covering this little press opportunity with Governor Reagan. And, of course, they saw the Panthers march by with these guns. They all fled and followed the Panthers. Hell yeah. And this got national media attention. Now, they re-ran this story after Martin Luther King was killed. And when Dr. King was killed, I went to 125th Street. Instead of going home, I went to 125th Street. 
and got caught up in the midst of the riot that was going on. You're saying in the immediate wake of the assassination? In the immediate wake of the assassination. So this is April of 68? This is April of 68. And found myself getting, I wasn't looting, wasn't rioting, but found myself thrown against the wall by a cop, about to be arrested for something that I didn't do. Somebody tipped over a cop car on the other side of the street. He ran in that direction. He said, stay right where you are. I was scared, but I wasn't stupid. I took off running, (laughs) ran through a store, wound up in an alleyway. More cops came, almost got shot as I climbed over a fence, ran around the corner. You're 15 years old. 15 years old, honor student in school, in the church choir. But this militant's anger came when Dr. King was assassinated. Yeah and ran straight into the arms of a group of black militant men who were standing in military formation. And they told me, stop running, young brother. And as I was trying to catch my breath, the cops came around and they froze when they saw these men lined up. And these brothers were not carrying guns. They were not carrying guns. But? Their presence backed those cops down. Yeah, yeah. Cops says, we're chasing looters. And they said, well, there's no looters here. And they said, who are you? And they said, we're a community patrol trying to make sure that no black people get killed out here tonight. Were they Panthers at that point? Did they describe themselves as Panthers? They did not in that moment describe themselves as Panthers, but I came to find out later they were Panthers. All right. The fun part of the story is I go to school the next day, and I announced to my little circle of friends, I was a hall monitor in school, which meant that we ate at a certain table, and then we went into the hallways and did nothing because nobody listened to us, but you got to eat first and get out of class early. And I announced to my friends that I, Eddie Joseph, was going to become a black militant. And one of my best friends was a kid, Paul Kirshner, a Jewish kid. And he said, Eddie, I don't know if you can announce that like it's a career choice, like you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. That's real funny. <laughs> it's like, no, Paul, you watch. I'm going to be a black militant. And so now to prove to Paul as much to myself, I had to find the most militant organization on the scene. And it was really a subjective process. It was like the black Muslims. I was like, nah, I don't really like bow ties. Plus, Grandma makes some mean pancakes and bacon on Sundays. It was completely subjective. You weren't going to give up the bacon for bean pies. Exactly. The Black Panther Party storming the state capital of Sacramento as they were talking about a rising militant. And I saw that report, and I looked, and I was like, they're crazy. They got guns and berets, and they stormed the legislature with white people. And they got away with it. The police pulled over the Panthers' vehicles, you know, after this, and they found more guns and communist literature in the trunk of their car. And I was like, they're crazy. They got guns, leather coats, and they're communists. They're crazy. I want to join them. Riding out to Brooklyn with two of my older friends, we're not quite sure what we're getting into, right? We had found, quote unquote, the secret headquarters of the Black Panther Party, which later you came to find out it was nothing secret. Those Panther officers were like community centers. So my older friends, I'm in the middle, I'm 15, they're 17 and 18. 
One of my friends leans over and he goes, yo, man, you know the Panthers is like the mafia, right? Once you join, there's no getting out. And I'm like, no getting out? But I can't be a punk in front of my boys. I was like, I don't care. My other friend leans over. He was like, yo, man, you know the Panthers is no joke, right? You know you're going to have to kill a white dude to prove that you're really down. And I'm like, kill somebody. I'm an honest dude and I'm in the choir, you know. But I can't be a punk. I was like, I don't care. He was like, nah, man, get it straight, man. Get it straight, dude. You ain't got to kill a white guy. Oh, God, I'm so relieved. He was like, you got to kill a white cop. <laughs> and you got to bring in his badge and his gun. So really, I found out later, they're playing psych out. And I think everybody was thinking, if I ran off the train, they had to follow me. But I was like, I don't care. I'm not going to be a punk in front of my boys. Back to that whole manhood thing that I was telling you. We get to the Panther office, and there's that cool Panther logo on the outside, Black Panther Party. Posters of Che Guevara, Malcolm X, Huey Newton in the window. We walk in, and all of these cool brothers and sisters in the Panther office with their leather coats, army fatigue jackets, berets, galas. And I'm sitting in the back, and I'm looking. Now, I'm saying cool older brothers and sisters because I'm 15 years old. But they were 18, 19, 20 years old. The average age of someone in the Black Panther Party was 19 to 20. The person up front is explaining the Panther 10-point program which talks about housing, which talks about education, which talks about the end to police brutality. Nothing about killing a white dude. Nothing about bringing a cop's badge and gun. I'm not hearing this. I have my own inner monologue going. He gets to point number five. We want an education that teaches us our true history and the true nature of this decadent American society. I jump up in the back of the thing. I was like, choose me, brother. Ah, me. I kill a white dude right now. <clears throat> the whole room goes quiet. He says, come here, young brother. And I walk up to the front. He's sitting behind this old wooden desk. Looks me up and down, and he reaches into the bottom drawer of the desk. And my heart is pounding in my skinny little chest. I was like, oh my God, look how far down he's reaching. He's gonna give me a big damn gun. And he hands me a stack of books. Autobiography of Malcolm X, Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, Everybody had the little red book, quotations from Chairman Mao. Now I'm thinking what my boys were telling me, right? So I say, I think this must be a test. So I clear my throat and uh, try to drop my voice an octave, right? I hadn't quite changed yet, so I sounded a lot like Michael Jackson. You know, I'm like, oh, excuse me, brother. I thought you were going to arm me. And he looks at me, he says, excuse me, young brother. I just did. Oh, and as I'm walking back to my seat, he wasn't done with me yet. He said, young brother, let me ask you a question, since you came in here like really mad at white folk. He said, if all of these racist pig police that are in the community, that are brutalizing people, beating them up, locking them up, shooting them down, if they were black and the people being brutalized were white, he said, if all of these avaricious businessmen in the community, these capitalist businessmen that are ripping the community off with these high prices, with spoiled vegetables and rotten meat, he said, if they were black and all the people being ripped off and exploited was white, he said, and all of these jive-time, demagogic, fascist pig politicians, senators, congressmen, president, he said, if all of them were black and the oppressed class was all right, would that make things correct? This time I answered with my brain instead of my now thoroughly bruised adolescent ego. And I said, well, no, brother, it seems like that would still be wrong. He said, that's right, young brother. 
This is a class struggle for human rights, mm. not just a race struggle for civil rights. You study those books so you learn what this revolution is about. So first day in the Black Panther Party, I'm giving books, not a gun, and I start to understand this thing about class struggle. And the Panthers had this greeting that was all power to the people. And so Fred Hampton or Elders Cleaver or Bobby Seale would come, the crowd would be charged up, and they go, all power to the people. People go, power to the people. And then they would go, that means black power for black people. And all the black people would go, yeah, right on. And they go, but that means white power for white people. Brown power for brown people. Yellow power for yellow people. Red power for red people. And Panther power to the vanguard. And then they would start to explain this idea of class struggle, this idea of what the system does to everyone. And this made the Panther message and the idea of the Black Panther Party quickly spread beyond the black community. And so while white people could not join the Panther Party, there were white people in the Panther office. The term Rainbow Coalition was coined by Fred Hampton in Chicago. This idea that we were all oppressed, this idea that there are as many, if not more, white families who are on welfare and struggling than black families, that the system is ripping us all off, and this idea of how capitalism works, you know, that in order for the ruling class to have a lot, most people can't have anything. And this fired me up. So now I'm back in school and I'm talking about socialism and social justice. I want to know what you did as a Panther and then how things go south and you end up in jail. So the other thing that you understood right away, that you were going to work hard as a Panther and it wasn't the romanticized news bite that you saw about just getting in cops' face with guns. And so the Panthers began to work with local grassroots folks and politicians to press for these programs. So 29 states made it law, made it policy and law. What came into being that hadn't been there? There was the idea of funding. There was an idea that the right for children to eat was a human right and that we should, in our budget, include this. So the national programs that we have now that we kind of take for granted, and this is not just me as a former Panther talking, every time a kid has a free meal in this country, it is because of the work of the Black Panther Party and those free breakfast programs because we didn't set out to do this. We set out to do a service in the community, and we use it as an organizing tool. We did say, how is it that the Black Panther Party and its community partners can feed kids and we're in the richest nation in the world? And they can figure out how to wage war around the world, and they can't figure out how to feed kids. So we shamed, as Erica Huggins says, we shamed the government. We shamed local governments. We shamed school boards. We shamed the government in understanding that you need to feed kids who can't afford to eat. What kind of work did you do? I worked as an organizer, creating high school cadres and creating a college-level black student union throughout New York City. What about going to school? Weren't you going to school during that time, too? Kind of, sort of. <laughs> You'd go to school, take some tests, try to stay awake. This is, during, get, this is high school This first. is high school. Get kicked out of class for being disruptive. You know, get kicked out of class because, uh, you know, because the, uh, the history teacher is trying to talk about Lincoln and the Civil War, and you jump up and give an impromptu lecture about capitalism and, and how it was an economic imperative to save capitalism, why Lincoln freed the slaves, and it was a movement that freed the slaves, not one president, you know, stuff like that. That's what your days were like in the Panther Party. One of my mentors was a guy named Yewa, who was a Vietnam veteran who had become a radical organizer around housing, some of the same things we taught about, who taught me hand-to-hand combat, how to fire a gun, 
even the right way to rap to a panther girl. You don't say to a panther woman, hey, baby, what's happening? Because she'll say, the revolution is happening, brother, and I'm nobody's baby. So people like Yewan and Fanny would say, you got to say power to the people, my sister. And when she says, how are you, brother? You have to say, sister, I'm exhausted. I was up doing the breakfast program. Then I was organizing in school. Then I was part of that rent strike. Then I did community patrol. I can barely stand, sister, but I'm, I'm high on the fumes of the energy of the people. And then she'll say, well, brother, maybe come by and I'll make you some dinner. That's how you got to talk to a panther woman. She wants to know that you're doing that work in the community. When my grandmother, who I'm on the go, and... She's like, clean up your room, take out the garbage. I'm too busy to do chores. I'm a revolutionary, right? She's like, what are you doing? And I'm making up all these clubs and organizations. Oh, Grandma, I got baseball practice. I can't play baseball. I got basketball practice. I'm making up all kinds of stuff. She goes into my room, finally to clean it up, as most parents do, right, when we can't take. And hidden under my bed, right, where most normal 15-year-old boys have their Playboy magazines, is all of this radical material. Emory Douglas's great art where the cops look like pigs and school children are carrying AK-47s talking about revolution in our lifetime. He was a Panther artist, wasn't he? He was a brilliant Panther But I'm saying for the, for the, the Panther newspaper. For the Panther newspaper. He was the minister of culture. I come in late that night and stacked up on the kitchen table are all of the Black Panther papers that she found. And she has the Bible. She was very religious. And there's a belt. It looked like a mafia altar. (laughs) And I come in and I freeze. And she says, boy, what is this? And I was like, Grandma, you was in my room? She said, don't even talk to me about that right now. What is this here? And I tried to explain it. And keep in mind, it's not only she found this stuff. Panthers are on the news every day. Confrontation with the police. Panther arrested, Panther killed. And she said, boy, you cannot go back. And she says, I don't know whether to bless you with this belt or kill you with this Bible, but you are not going back there. And I tried to explain, and she said no. So I went back one more time to explain why I couldn't come back. And I said, my grandmother is tripping, and she's brainwashed, Uncle Tom. And a Fanny Shakur, Tupac's mom, almost jumped into my chest. She said, never speak about your grandmother like that. Do you understand what you're fighting for? She says, and part of this is your fault. A lot of this is your fault because you were lying to her. So don't come in here talking about what your grandmother didn't do, talking about what you didn't do. And my section leader, Yewa, said, let me go talk to her. Yewa comes to my house. My grandmother finally consented. He had his leather panther coat on, but a tie. I didn't even know we were allowed to wear ties. And he sits down. He took all his, you know, the panther buttons off. And he sits and we're in the living room. And... My grandmother was named Jessie Mae Baltimore. And he says, Mother Baltimore. And right away, he gets some points because she's an elder in the church, so he knew how to address her. If you say Jamal, he said, excuse me, if you say Eddie, can't come back to the Panther office, we have to listen to you because you're his grandmother and you're my elder. And I'm on the side. I was like, why is he calling me by my slave name? I'm Jamal now. And he says, but ma'am, Whether you decide to let him come back or even if you don't let him come back, if it's okay with you, I'd like to keep an eye on him. He said, if you say that his curfew is 10 o'clock at night and he doesn't walk in the house at 9 o'clock, he says, ma'am, I will take off this garrison belt buckle and I'll beat his butt. And I'm off on the side going, what are you you doing? You're supposed to be coming doing the panther voodoo. What what are you doing? He said, ma'am, 
I know he's not doing as good as he can do in school. If you want him to bring you an 85 on the next algebra test, if he doesn't walk you a 90 in the door, I will take the size 13 combat boot and I'll kick him in the butt. And I'm on the side going like, why did you even come? I'm grounded till I'm 50. And grandma says, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. She says, and it is very hard raising a boy alone. His grandfather's been gone for a couple of years now. She said, so you will seem like a very nice man if you make sure that he listens and does what he's supposed to do in the house and in school, and you keep an eye on him, I'll let him go back. And so because of that visit, I went back. About four weeks later, my door is kicked in, grandma's door is kicked in at five o'clock in the morning, and I'm arrested and charged with conspiracy to plant bombs around New York City, to have weapons to wage war against the police in a case that became known as the New York Panther 21 case. And then we find out that New York City had an elite police unit called the Boss Unit, the Bureau of Special Services. And it was a deep undercover unit where you would go under and stay undercover for years. And so we found out about this Boss Unit and that two operatives were Panthers. One was a guy named Gene Roberts who had been Malcolm X's bodyguard. Malcolm drew his last breath from an undercover cop. And the other undercover cop was Yewa, my mentor. The person who taught me how to hold a gun, make pancakes at the breakfast program, came to my grandmother's house. But wait a minute, when you discovered that, it must have blown your mind. It was devastating. I was in prison when I found out. You were preparing for violent revolution that as a young radical yourself, as a revolutionary yourself, the prospect of urban guerrilla warfare wasn't some bizarre fantasy. This is something you prepared for. You imagined that the actual liberation revolution was imminent, true or false. This is very true. Our heroes were people like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara in the Cuban Revolution, Patrice Lumumba. And so we knew there would come a time, we believed there would come a time where there would be warfare in a community where troops would roll in and you would have to fight. You spent a total of nine years in prison. How does that break down? I was arrested the first time when I was 16 years old and spent a year in prison related to the Panther 21 case before I was released on bail. Went back to prison from ages 18 to 21, and that was three years for weapons possession and robbery. And that was connected to the Panthers' war on drug dealers in the Harlem community, kicking in their doors, confiscating the drugs, giving the money to community projects, but it's still on robbery, even if you're robbing a drug dealer at gunpoint. Even if you're robbing Hood, it becomes that. Went to Brooklyn College for a little while, became a college dropout, community activist, a drug counselor, and then went back to prison in my 20s convicted of hiding people who were on the run, who were part of the Brinks case. And that was a group of radical folks, both black and white, that were accused of robbing an armored car, breaking us out of Shakur out of prison, a number of things that became this giant conspiracy that the government wanted to prosecute. I wound up convicted of doing what I had done, helping people evade federal prosecution to get out of the country. And for that, I got 12 and a half years and served six years of that, and spent most of that time in Leavenworth Federal Prison in Kansas. You know there's a, a Wikipedia entry on you? Did you know that? Not surprised. You're going to tell me what you make of it. 
And then also, uh, what I'm guessing is this. You might want to change it to the extent that this is true or not. Right. Okay? And I'll tell you, reading it, this stuff is not positive. I don't know if it's true. And they, they do eventually get around to talking about some of you know, your, your more glorious accomplishments as well. So it's weird. So they say, Joseph served time for his role in the murder of Sam Napier in April of 1971. Napier was the circulation manager of the Black Panther newspaper, killed as part of factional disputes within the Panthers. And then also, they said, you were involved with robberies committed by the Black Liberation Army as an accomplice in the Brinks robbery in 1981. The Sam Napier murder case was something that we were put on trial for in Queens and acquitted of. And the accomplice in the Brinks robbery is what I was convicted of hiding folks out for who were on the run for the FBI. So they're wrong about the first thing, that you served time for the role in the murder of Sam Napier? No. You had nothing to do with that? We won that case. Okay. And then the Brinks robbery. I was charged as someone who was part of the whole conspiracy. The government loves the conspiracy cases. I was guilty, and proudly guilty, of hiding out people who were on the run in that Brinks robbery and conspiracy. There was a group of radical folks who were former Panthers and SDS, now part of groups that evolved into the Weathermen and the Black Liberation Army who were part of that. In the wake of the Brinks robbery, you are sentenced to prison. And during the course of that time, you were able, in effect, to go to college while you were in prison and to refashion yourself as a filmmaker and a, as a teacher. So talk about that. I got great advice when I wound up on the big yard in Leavenworth. An old-timer named Mr. Cody came to me, and he said, Youngblood, you can serve this here time, or you can let this here time serve you. And it was like transformative. It's something I try to live by even now, and I just immersed myself in, there was an amazing college program that University of Kansas had. Four nights a week, you could go to school full-time, three hours a night. Is that kind of program still in effect today? That's astonishing. So there's a lot of college programs around the country because it's recognized that the rate of recidivism drops drastically proportionate to the amount of education that a man or woman gets while they're in prison. And they would come in and they would work us so hard. In fact, we would say, Professor Johnson, do you work your students on the main campus this hard? And they would say, no, and you know why. You guys are gonna have to be twice as good. Mm. And there was so much respect, I'll even say fear, because they would come in understanding that we were human beings. So we had an English professor and she would come in and mark up your papers and go, Mr. Joseph, I know you could do better. Mr. Adler, I know you could do better than this. And we would go, okay. And then one day she came in and she had a Bible and she had actually drawn some red lines through grammatical errors in the Bible. We were like, yo, she's correcting Jesus and God. We got nothing coming here. Amazing programs. KU no longer has that program and didn't remember that they had the program. A few years ago, I was in Kansas speaking. Leavenworth is in Kansas. And the university had me as an esteemed guest because I'm one of their alums who went on to become a Columbia professor and chair of a department. And I'm walking with the vice provost of the university around the main campus. I said, you know I got my degree on your Leavenworth campus. He was like, what? 
But there's nothing in my records that said that it was earned in prison. I'm a graduate of KU, so it's not like my diploma is like behind bars with a baseball cap turned back was going, peace. The other thing I did, Mr. Cody said, hey, young blood, you was in the Panthers out there. And I said, yes, I was. And he said, and you did some of that karate stuff out there, which was also true. You know, I started studying karate. I, I was a black belt, and I said, yes. He said, and you did them plays and things on the outside. I was like, well, how did he know that? Keep in mind, this is like pre-social media and all of that. And I had been part of the black arts movement where I did some poetry and did some acting. And he said, well, you should do something for Black History Month. You know what's coming up. And the way he said it, I knew it wasn't a request. It was like an order. And I went to the library and... What year is it? 1983, 84. And Black History Month came into effect when? Right around then, no? 81? Black History Month had been around for a while. It actually had been around... It was first Black History Week and then Black History Month, so it had been around, but it wasn't... But that the fact that we got a Black History Month program in prison was a big deal. Went to the library, only one black play, Raisin in the Sun. And I came to Mr. Cody and I says, I, I don't think we could do it because the only play I found is Raisin in the Sun, and it has a lot of women in it. In fact, the lead character is the grandmother. She's the matriarch. And he said, young blood, look out on the yard. Pick out four or five guys. We'll put a dress on him. I was like, no, I don't think that's the solution. So I went and wrote a play. This is how I became a playwright. We're rehearsing. I have to back up and just describe the way Leavenworth was in most prisons. It's segregated. Guys stand in their own section of the yard by race. Latino brothers, black brothers, white brothers, and all these have within their section their crews. So bikers, Aryan Brotherhood, part of that section, La M.A. Mexican Mafia, over here, Muslims, black guerrilla family, people stay in their section. You may be subdivided, but that's the geography of any prison yard. Then and now, guys segregate themselves. So we're doing this Black History Month play. We have a little space in, you know, the area of the gym. And two of the brothers who are the leaders of La Eme, the Mexican Mafia, baddest Latino gang in Leavenworth, in, in, in a lot of the prison, federal prison system. They come, they sit down, they just start watching. And their double and triple life is because some of them caught more time for committing murders after they were already doing time. <laughs> You're some heavy dudes. And so all of us have the same thought. Like, Emmy has left their courtyard, and they're sitting here with death in their eye. Who are they here to kill? But you play it cool, and you're working. So I'm working with one of my actors. I'm trying to teach him how to improv. I'm looking over my eye, and this brother Tito, who's the lead of La Eme, looks upset, more upset. And finally, after about 10 minutes, he points right at me, and he was like, yo, homie, let me speak to you a minute. I was like, oh, shit, it's me. <laughs> I got beef with La Eme. What's up? I was like, be cool, Jamal. Just talk to the brother. You know what I mean? Man to man. If he reaches for something, do what you got to do, but just talk to him. And he pulls me to the side, and he was like, yo, S.A., I've been here for about 10 minutes, man. Because it's a rumor, man, what you're doing in Leavenworth, man. There's no secrets here in Leavenworth, man, in the big top, Holmes. And I've been sitting here for about 10 minutes, man, and I need to tell you something, Holmes, and listen to me good, baby. That guy you're working with, that fucking guy. Yo, homie, he's not feeling his character. No! <laughs> True story. Too funny. So I said, well, why don't you come in? He gets in. 
I go and I rewrite the play. Now the play is black and Latino with a Black History Month. Spin. Tell me Homeboy could act a little bit too. Homeboy was good. Yeah, yeah. Homeboy had done some stuff in, uh, in yeah. high school. <laughs> so and then he makes his boy gets in. And then there's a guy named Reb, who's a legend, who was uh, from the South. Reb is short for Rebel, white guy. Not hardcore Aryan Brotherhood, but Reb is about 6'2", 200 pounds of muscle, fifth degree black belt. He has a crew, but he goes any way he wants alone. He goes up, because the white guys are like, man, yo, what's up with the Latinos and the blacks, man? They teaming up against us? Reb comes to check it out. He comes back, and it was like, Reb, where was you? Reb was like, I was uh, over there with them guys, man, with the blacks and the Latinos. And he was like, really, Reb? What are they up to? Reb said, uh, they're doing a play. Well, Reb, what'd you do about it? Because he's a badass. And Reb said, well, um, they give me a part. <laughs> Literally, we had our own court in the yard. Black brothers, white brothers, Latino brothers, creating this work and doing it. And men getting to know each other because... We had a common ground, a safe space based on creating something, based upon doing our own time. And the amount of violence dropped radically in the prison mm. when we do these plays. Mm -hmm. Up until that time, you know, Gil Scott Heron had a great poem, said the revolution would not be televised. And I remember standing back at one of our plays, seeing the, seeing the guys on stage, but the reaction of their peers. And, you know, it was funny because they were yelling at the, at the stage, doing what they do, but it was in context of what was happening or what was going on. So you might see your friend being an actor and they might be like, oh, Bill, you're an actor now, huh? Why don't you act like you're going to pay me that card and the cigarettes you owe me? But you would stay in character because we planned for this. And then five minutes or 10 minutes into the play, they're calling you by your character's name. Yo, lefty, that dude is no good. Don't go for it. They're in the moment. And I remember sitting back thinking, boy, Maybe the revolution won't be televised, but it might get a few commercials, and I want to be part of that. Mm. And my other thinking was, my degrees are in psychology and sociology. Those are the Release degrees plan. you earned in prison. In prison. I graduated summa cum laude with degrees in psychology and sociology in Leavenworth. And my plan when I came home was to continue, get a doctorate in psychology, but I was going to study acupuncture and some holistic stuff, and I was going to have this holistic counseling practice. You hippie you. I was that hippie healer, you know, post-revolutionary. But then I saw the effect that we were having with these plays, and I was like, Jamal, you can work with people one-on-one, -on -one, or you could learn this stuff a little bit more and mess with a whole bunch of people's heads at once. And it's really there in prison that I decided I wanted to be a cultural activist, that I wanted to do plays and I wanted to do films, and I wanted them to be entertaining and pull people over, but have a social message kind of component. In other words, it. It, it was not a natural continuation of the kind of political activism that you'd begun doing as a teenager. Yeah, I discovered it then. I didn't think so. I always appreciated, of course, you know, as a teenager, as an activist, when you saw The Last Poets or you read a great book, you were like, yeah, you know, art and revolution. But I didn't consider myself as an artist. I discovered that I was truly an artist in Leavenworth Prison. I often hear gunshots from my window. Oh, the liberation demanded 
tell us how you get from your lengthy stint at Leavenworth to a full professorship at Columbia University. I came out of Leavenworth with these degrees in psychology and sociology and armload of plays and poetry that I had written. I was doing some of my plays in the community, church basements, community centers, but just kind of getting out there as a playwright. I wound up getting a job at Toro College at their Harlem campus as a recruitment counselor. And they had a program where they were reaching out to what they call second chance students, people who were coming out of drug rehab, prison, welfare moms. People like yourself. People like myself. On my resume, under additional experience, I put Black Panther Party and served time in prison. I'm sitting with the dean of the college who is a conservative-looking white guy, you know, in his 50s, in his mid-50s. And, of course, he goes straight to that point on the resume. He says, so you spent time in prison. And I said, yes, and I was director of, you know, assistant director of treatment at Narco Infinity Drug Program in Harlem and head of Henry Street Settlement Day Camp. You know, I'm trying to steer him to the other parts of the resume. And then he said, and you were really a member of the Black Panther Party? And I was like, uh, yes, and as you see, I graduated summa cum laude, and I have some postgraduate training. And he said, so you can really get out in this community and talk to folks. And then I saw he liked it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I did the breakfast program and housing. And it turned out that he, as a professor, used Soul on Ice and Malcolm X as textbooks in his English class, white guy. And when he worked for the New York State Board of Regents, he's one of the people that pioneered college programs and prisons in New York State. So the universe led me to the right place at the right time. Started counseling, then was invited to be director of student activities because I was bringing a lot of plays and poetry readings and musicians to the college anyway. And then a person who was supposed to teach a theater course bowed out at the last minute. And they let me teach one course. That became two or three courses. So I built up a bit of a teaching resume. Simultaneously, as a filmmaker, I'm starting to write and sell screenplays in Hollywood and went through the Sundance Directing Lab and met a wonderful producer in one of the labs there, James Seamus, who was the founder of The Good Machine and discovered Ang Lee as a director and then became founder of Focus Features. I'd been out about five or six years I got a call from James Seamus that I was going to hear from a man named Lewis Cole, who was chair at the film department at Columbia University. And I went and met Lewis, and Lewis had been one of the leaders of SDS at Columbia back Is in those C-O-L-E? days. C-O-L-E? Yeah, C-O-L-L-E. Did he ever write for Rolling Stone? Yeah, he wrote for Rolling Stone. Great guy. Passed away a few years ago. He wrote, it might have been a cover story about Run DMC for Rolling Stone. Okay, yeah. That's how I knew him. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Great guy. And Lewis invited me to teach what I thought was going to be one film course, one screenwriting course for one semester. And I said, cool. You know, a chance to say that I taught at Columbia University. And he had done such a great job in terms of where he had taken the film school. He was then the chair and was such a great mentor of mine as a professor, as a junior professor, that what I thought was going to be one course for one semester wound up being, as I mentioned earlier, 18 years. And me now a full professor and also serving as chair of the film school for five years. Being a professor is not something that I saw, but I realize it's something that I'm really suited for. I truly enjoy it. I truly enjoy what I get from teaching, sharing what I know about film, 
helping students find their voice. For me, my voice is rooted in my experience in the movement, growing up, connected to social justice. And for me, a favorite subject is black men, black malehood, what that means in the community, black families. But for me, it's been an amazing journey there at Columbia, and I'm happy to, to be there and looking forward to the next decade or so of teaching. So now let's talk about your new movie. You produced and directed a wonderful movie, a feature film called Chapter and Verse. I was so delighted to get a chance to see it. I think it's wonderful. And the story, in a nutshell, is a 30-ish black man does a stint in prison and comes back to Harlem and tries to put his life in order and complications ensue. The idea is that when I walk down the streets of Harlem and Daniel Beatty, who's the lead of the film and who co-wrote the script, when we walk down the streets, we see two Harlems. And especially we're talking about... And this is right now in the 21st century. This is right now in the 21st century. So we see the Harlem that has been gentrified, that has expensive brownstones, expensive co-op apartments, really great but pricey restaurants. We see that. And the millennials and everybody that kind of coming in. But we also see on those same streets the kids and the black men who are struggling to survive, who have been to prison and who are going to prison. And that's an alarmingly high number, one in three. Studies show that one in three black men in Harlem and in similar communities have been to prison and will wind up going to prison, as opposed to a number of one in five or one in six that will go to college. So we see that third man. And Daniel and I were sitting and talking and realizing that even when he and I sit and are having tea or coffee in my apartment or his apartment in Harlem, that the third man is in the room right there. I'm the third man in my family. I've been to prison albeit for connection and movement stuff, but I'm a formerly incarcerated person. Daniel's father has been in prison, Daniel's older brother. And when we started talking about who these people are, our neighbors, people I did time with, but brothers that I see in my building or in the street corner, trying to be dads, trying to work, trying to survive, some successful, some not so successful. They are real people. So we knew we wanted to do a film together. We knew we wanted it to be a Harlem story, We knew we wanted it to be an independent film. He's a magnificent actor, Daniel Beatty, who has a tremendous theatrical resume, but I wanted to debut him in film. And we started talking about what story could we uniquely tell as black men living in Harlem and as black artists and activists. And we came up with this idea of doing a character study of a man coming home from prison, strong man, but a good man deep inside, trying to deal with so many forces that men coming home from prison deal with, and how does he take that journey with strength and dignity and meet those challenges? They used to call me L, a crazy L from 118th. Check these streets. Check with your crew in the joint. Find out who I am. Go there, 9 a.m. Supervisor's name is Yolanda Rayson. A food pantry. Come on, Mr. Morris. They had me working in a mess hall in the joint for eight years. Then you should be good to go. I got two computer certificates. I took piano lessons. You don't see my ass up in Carnegie Hall. I want to recommend that movie to everybody. What are the prospects? In February, we're going to be opening in, I think, five cities in limited release in New York, Atlanta, Chicago, and Los Angeles in theaters. That's very good news. How important has family been to you in your long life? 
Talk for a moment about being married for 30-odd years and talk about being a father. So what sustained me in prison, just as important as education and art, was Joyce Walker Joseph. We just celebrated our 35th anniversary, and keep in mind that seven of those years were prison marriage. And she is a wonderful actress and writer. She was an iconic presence in terms of the Black is Beautiful movement. Her maiden name is Joyce Walker. And so if you Google Joyce, you'll see pictures of Joyce with her afro and her brown skin and her trademark big hoop earring on the covers of many, many magazines and in the pages of magazines and did some iconic films like The Education of Sonny Carson and Willie Dynamite and Paid in Full, one of the original members of Negro Ensemble Company. And when I met Joyce, she was just entering law school. Then we fell in love, had a whirlwind romance, got married and pregnant all within six months. And then right after the FBI kicked in the door and took me away, we lived on 14th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue in the village. And I was gone for the next six and a half years. She stood by me. There's a moment where I did my sister, please live your life, you know. Yeah, and keep in mind, our son was born with sickle cell anemia. So she went from law school and modeling and traveling the world to spending most of her days between a courtroom and an emergency room. And I tried to do what I thought was the right thing. And I was like, my sister, you know, I know things are... I started to speech. I didn't even say, hey, baby. She was my wife, but I, I had prepared my Black Power speech. My sister, comes a time in our struggle where the objective realities might mean that uh, we have to make some difficult choices. And I appreciate that you stood by me, but you should live your life. The only thing I ask is that you remember me to our son from time to time, my sister. And she kind of looked at me. She went, oh, you finished? <laughs> That's real funny. <laughs> yes. She said, you finished? I was like, well, yeah, my sister. She says, no, is that what you want? And I broke down. Well, nah, baby, but I'm just thinking. She says, look, if that's not what you want, let us never have that conversation again. She's amazing. And I came out, we had... I'm going to say something. That's a wife, too. That's a wife. That's a wife. See, but She's... you know what? That's something that needs to be said. And I'm not going to get up on a soapbox, but my wife and I just celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary. And my marriage to that woman is absolutely the bedrock of my life, and it has been for the entirety of our lives together. And I mention it just because I don't hear other folks talking about it so often. I don't hear, you know, folks of our generation, and certainly not folks of a younger generation, talking about the potential benefits of marriage, not to mention the actual benefits of marriage if you happen to be married. So that's why I'm asking you about it now. And I have to say that... All of the good decisions that I've made, she's pushed me in the right direction just to say, why not teach at Columbia? For example, when there was an opportunity to go full time and I was like, well, I'm making movies and I don't know. And she was like, why not do that? And then she and I co-founded along with Voza Rivers, who's a theatrical producer in Harlem, something called Impact Repertory Theater. It is a program that we've run for 19 years in Harlem where we give young people, kids, tweens and teens, free training in theater, writing, music performance, and most important, leadership training and activism. And these kids have performed all over the city, the country, and at the Oscars. I got nominated for an Oscar in 1987 for a song that I contributed to called Raise It Up that was in the film August Rush. When the Oscar people called me and told me that I'd been nominated, I said, uh, it wasn't just me. And they go, like, who else? I said, I have a group of kids, and I tried to give them like nine different names that kind of co 
it was like, what are you talking about? And I had to explain what the program was. They allowed me to have two other people on the nomination, but I got to take 30 young people from Harlem to perform on the stage of the 2008 Academy Awards, a song they had written in the basement of a community center about their lives that wound up in a film. A lot of those kids are now in college. We really push the idea that you can be an artist no matter where you are. And so if you want to be a singer, get that degree in music. If you want to be an actor, get that degree in theater. If you want to be a filmmaker, get that degree. And you can teach it, and you always have that foundation. And so that's been the work. But that came out of Joyce talking to me about a kid who got shot in our neighborhood. And I was doing great volunteer work with the youth organization downtown, and she was like, we need something in Harlem. So again, when I talk about everything that I've done, she has been counsel, inspiration, and a life partner. It's been my great pleasure to talk to Jamal Joseph, a filmmaker and a college professor and an inspiration to me, and I hope to you. This has been Too Old to Die Young. I am Bill Adler. Thank you. Thank you.